I uh, really appreciated Michael sharing last week. I feel a little t- intimidated that following that up, I have to be funny. <laughs> it's not, not possible. But I want to start by telling you a story, because he was so good at that. Uh, there was this guy who was in the southern part of the U.S. He was talking with some folks, and they were hunters. And he was saying, ah, oh, you guys hunt, and they hunt deer. It's a very, very big thing. In fact, we were in uh, Canada, and they hunt moose. And then they eat that meat all winter. So they hunt deer, and the guy said, you guys, uh, you hunt, and you, you uh, get a license to do that. And then you have to, do, you have to agree to wear the safety gear, like fluorescent orange vests, and said, why is that? And they said, well, it's for protection. Protection from the deer? No, from the other hunters. So you give guns to people who can't tell the difference between a deer and a person. <laughs> I said, yeah. He said, uh, it's not hard. Just count the legs. So you're telling me you give guns to people who can't count to four. I said, that, that, that's, that's pretty bad. And one of the guys was telling me, yeah. Except that uh, he was telling him a story about his, his buddy who got shot at while he was out hunting. And the thing is, his buddy was in a hide, a blind, up in a tree. And he had on a fluorescent orange vest. <laughs> so can you imagine these two guys walk along hunting? And one guy looks at his buddy and says, George, I see a deer. Where? Up in that tree. <laughs> hey, Bill, I see an orange vest. They've learned camouflage. <laughs> hey, Bill, I only count two legs. That's why he's hiding in the tree. He can't run very fast. Moral of the story is that we see often what we expect to see. We convince ourselves. And we can justify how we look at things. I figured I would save ridiculing hunters here because not everyone, not a whole lot of hunters in Australia. Uh, We've been talking about uh, the kingdom of God. As we align ourselves with God's pattern and priority, we see his kingdom in advance and an increasing presence of God, his glory manifest in our lives, in our homes, and in our church. And uh, we talked about a while back, the first key to that is worship. As priests we, priests, we each carry the presence of God. So as we gather, we're carrying the presence of God. And there's something as we enter in that we see an increased manifestation of his presence. I hope you're experiencing that. I hope it's not just me. Uh, Jesus spoke more about the kingdom of God than anything else. In the beginning of his ministry, the first thing he said was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, in Matthew 4. Repent, which means think differently. Think differently because the kingdom is so different. After his resurrection, Acts 1-3 says that he spoke to them about things pertaining to the kingdom. So he started with the kingdom, he preached the kingdom, and he ended with the kingdom more than anything else. 
The reason is that the kingdom of God is so totally different than the world. Satan's the ruler of this world. The Bible tells us that. So his kingdom reflects him, where the kingdom of God represents him. And so we need to understand kingdom. So if you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. Verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, Jesus is teaching about the kingdom. There's a lot of parables. He goes on from this chapter to talk about those who are faithful. He talks about kingdom leadership. He talks about a whole lot of different things. He eventually gets to Matthew 24, and he says this gospel, this good news of the kingdom will be preached to all the world, and then the end will come. So he's just reiterating what he's been been talking about, and that's the context Jesus speaking about the kingdom. But you need to understand something else. When the disciples asked this, they were reflecting or representing something of the Jewish world, uh, the, the Greek worldview. Not Jewish, that was Greek. I don't know why that came out Jewish. Do you ever say that, do that? Where did that come from? The Greek worldview, which was really a whole lot of competition and comparison. So the Greeks had this idea that the gods, there were a whole lot of them, had relationships with uh, humans and created half-gods, demigods, they called them. And if you look, there's a whole uh, bunch of them, Hercules and Aeneas and Perseus and different uh, half-gods, demigods. And their belief was that the more you were like them, the more value you had. And so you began to be compared to a standard that was established by these half-gods. So the more athletic you were, the more, the more beautiful, the more things that you accomplished, the performance gave you greater value. And so that led to, if you think about that, that's actually the, the basis still of the world's uh, way of relating, which is still competition and, and comparison. And so that's what happens when you're comparing to a standard. You end up with this comparison and competition, which leads to criticism. We focus on the ways that we're not meeting up to the standard, whatever that is. And the result is insecurity and rejection. I think those are the main strongholds in many, many people in Western culture because our values that come from the world are based on this Greek thing. And so we have this idea that we don't measure up and we're insecure. No matter how much we accomplish, it's never enough. No matter how capable you are, there's always some area that you're lacking. And it opens a door to rejection. If a uh, if you need to get free from that, talk to Michael and Margaret. They're going to do a living free retreat, and that will help you get free from those things. But Jesus used this opportunity to teach about kingdom relationships. That's what this chapter is about. I want to give you a warning this morning. You need to take off the filters and the, the, the colored lenses that have caused you to look at Scripture a certain way. I believe God's wanting to tear down some strongholds. 
this morning. And so Jesus, they ask him, who's the greatest? Here's an opportunity to talk about kingdom relationships. And that's what the whole chapter, the whole chapter of chapter 18 of, of Matthew is Jesus answering that question. When he called the little child to him, he set him in the midst of them and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you shall by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. For whoever humbles himself as this little child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. See, Jesus starts out with some heart values that reflect the kingdom. And the first being humility. We jump over to Philippians. Chapter 2 from verse 3. Paul's following the same idea and he says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. See, one of the definitions of humility is the absence or to be devoid of arrogance or self-exaltation. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind or humility, let each person esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's the definition of love. Let this mind or attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who's the example? Jesus. Jesus. Thank you. I keyed her up for that. <laughs> Who being in the form of God did not consider it something to be grasped. It actually says robbery to be equal with God. That word is something to be held on to. He didn't consider something to be held on to that he was in the form of God. But emptied himself or made himself of no reputation. Taking the form of a bondservant and becoming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Humility is one of the keys for understanding the kingdom. James 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5, 5 says that God's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humility unlocks and releases grace. I mean, that, that alone is such a heavy thought. God's opposed to the proud. That word literally means that God works against. You don't want God working against you. Yet the very concept, the hard attitude of the world is pride, arrogance, self-exaltation, marketing, let me convince you how great I am. And the kingdom swings the pendulum and says, no, it's just the opposite. Why? Because when we're humble, grace is released. Here's a thought for you. Why was Jesus born in a manger in Bethlehem? Not because he came for the poor, but because by uh, demonstrating humility, grace was released to the planet. He was grace and truth. He humbled himself. Sorry, back over in 
Matthew. I made the mistake of turning and closing my Bible. Now I don't know where it is. He goes on and says, whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. So the other heart attitude is acceptance. Now understanding that the Greeks had a very, very strong caste. There were citizens, there were men were the top, uh, women were lower, children were, were nothing. But if you weren't a Roman citizen, you were, weren't even considered a human. For instance, the, uh, that attitude became the, the, the same for the, the Romans. And in 70 AD, the uh, Romans destroyed Jerusalem and killed a million people, and it was almost ignored in Rome. Because they were just a conquered nation. They don't really count. So Jesus cuts through that and says, acceptance, humility and acceptance. And then he goes on and talks about woe uh, to those who th- through whom offenses come. That's uh, too heavy to deal with right now. We're going to come back to that later. Uh, But then he goes on in verse 10. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. He's talking about honor. Honor. Not only humbling ourselves, because that's our attitude, but then how we look at others. Acceptance and honor. Do we accept people who are different? Considered lesser. Do we honor people with different backgrounds, different gifts? Is our heart attitude to honor? Those are the heart values, foundations of kingdom relationships. You can't go on to what he says later on if that isn't, if you haven't got that. Humility, considering others better than than myself, Acceptance, accept people who are different, and honor. I'm looking to to make sure that that people receive honor, not just me. There is a teaching about honor in the body of Christ that has missed this point because the whole point of it is you have to honor leaders. Let me tell you, you should honor me. It's actually just the opposite. We should honor each other. Sorry, I'm getting sidetracked. And then he goes on in verse 15 with a very practical application. He's giving you the heart values, but then he comes with this practical application. He says, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he hears you, you will have gained your brother. He's talking about relationships within the kingdom, if your brother sins against you. He's not talking about how you deal with the world. They're going to sin against you. They've got no other option. They're selfish. But if your brother sins against you, let me point this out. It says, if your brother sins against you. If you have the NIV, it says, if your brother sins. That's a terrible translation. I don't know why they did that, but it changes the whole focus. 
It goes from if Lance does something against me, I need to go to him. But when you take against me away and you say if, if your brother sins, then all of a sudden I've become the sheriff looking around to see who's sinning. Oh, both did something wrong. I better go talk with him. Pretty soon I'm trying to watch how people act. It doesn't say that. Sorry, I get excited when I, when I preach. So what's the goal? You go to them alone. Why? Because the goal is reconciliation. Sin makes a separation. Sin is something very clear. Sin is not me looking for some offense. Tim didn't greet me well enough when he came in, so I'm offended. That's not sin. Preference. They didn't play the songs I like. So I'm offended. That's not sin. This isn't talking about imposing my preferences on others. It's talking about restoring relationships when there's actual sin. Why? Because love is the foundation of the new covenant. And it says this, that if he hears you, you've gained or restored your brother. Again, the NIV says you've won him over. Terrible. Causes the idea that I'm right and he's wrong and he's got to come in and agree with me. Okay, I'm the, I'm the sheriff. I'm looking to see who's doing something wrong and I have to correct them and win them over. And it puts it in this concept, not of reconciliation, but of some sort of judge and jury type thing. And then it goes on and it says, if he will not hear you, take with you two or three more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. It's quoting something in the Old Testament. What does that mean? That means you take two or three people, not as jury. What are they witnessing? Not the original offense. They're witnessing your heart attitude for reconciliation. See, too often we take that out of context. We say, you know, I'm upset at Tony, so I'm going to get Lance and, and Johan to go with me, and we're going to confront him, and they're going to, they're going to be the, the jury, and I'm going to, we're going to argue this thing out. <laughs> exactly. The witnesses are there to witness to the heart of reconciliation. Luke chapter 12. We don't often read this. But in verse 13 it says, one of the crowd, Jesus is teaching, uh, and he's talking about just confessing Christ and the Holy Spirit. And in the midst of that, it says, from, then one from the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. I'm bringing my case. And he said to him, man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? How often 
do people come to you as the witness and want you to be the judge in a situation? Let me tell you about what Lance did. I, uh, he, he's, sitting, he's sitting right here, sorry. <laughs> okay, sorry, I, I, I'll, I'll pick on Josh. <laughs> Let me tell you what Josh did. Now I know why nobody sits in the front row. <laughs> well, there's nobody in front of him, so I... How often do people want us to be the judge? And they come and let me tell you what so-and-so did. And the, the problem with that is once they tell you of their hurt... How do you respond? So Johnny tells me of something that Josh did. But Josh isn't there. Johnny's telling me. How do I respond to Johnny? If I agree with him, then I actually take on his hurt. But Josh hasn't done anything to me. How can I then get reconciled with Josh, who hasn't done, he hasn't sinned against me, if I've just taken on someone else's hurt. As you know, okay, I did it again. Matthew 18. I should put a bookmark there and then I'd find it. (laughs) Wonderful, thank you. It goes on and says, if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. Now he's talking about something that is sin, clearly recognized as sin, but someone refuses to to turn from it. Uh, And tell it to the church. So I say, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Say that if two of you agree on anything concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm there in the midst of them. He's talking about something of unity. We're going to come back to that. But he goes on in verse 21, and Peter, responding to this, came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven, he tells this parable, is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one of them, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children all they had, and that payment be made. And the servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience, and I'll pay you all. There's no way he was going to. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. He didn't say, I'll have patience and you can pay it back. He actually said, you're ridiculous to think you can ever pay this. I will forgive you the whole debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat. Come here, lads. 
and took him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down on his feet and begged him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Interesting, he used the exact same words. But he would not, but went and threw him into prison until he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved, and they came and told the master all that had been done. Then the master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have compassion on your fellow servants just as I had pity on you? Some thoughts. First and foremost, love and grace are the foundation of the new covenant. The foundation of the kingdom of God. Love and grace are the foundation. Love and grace are the foundation. Everything in the kingdom is built on that bedrock of love and grace. We'll talk about these over the next couple weeks. But we need to get that in. What that means is this. They allow us to overlook a lot of immaturity. Not everything that someone does is sin. It might just be immaturity. And grace allows me to overlook that. I approach people with the same grace that I've received and I allow people to make mistakes. To not greet me as I think they should. That's not sin. Grace says, I accept people. We're all at different levels of maturity. We're growing from the time we get saved to the time we die. We're growing to be more like Christ. At what point do we become enough Christ-like that we'll accept someone? Let me ask you again. At what point will someone become enough like Christ that you'll accept them? Rush, you've gone from preaching to Midland. See, love and grace allow us to maintain a right heart toward people who are growing, who have different gifts, who are maturing. This is the foundation of kingdom relationships. Then my second thought is this. He says, if your brother sins against you, or sin occurs against you, sin not a perceived slight, against you, not someone else. For instance, let's say I've asked Johan to do some work at my house, and I agree to pay him so much, and then after he completes it, I don't pay him. Now his response shouldn't just be grace. Oh, well, that's no big deal. No, because it makes a separation. But he, sh- he should come and talk to me. But he shouldn't go to Matt and say, that Russ, he's a thief. 
He's a man of bad character because he didn't pay me. He ripped me off. Well, maybe I did, but maybe I just forgot. Unfortunately, I, I did this once, not with Johan, but I, I set up a, a payment on the bank, and then I forgot to hit the, the enter. And I was sure that I paid it. And then I had to go back and look and went, oh, oh, it did, I didn't actually do that. Was I wrong? Absolutely. Was I trying to steal from someone? No, I was just an idiot. <laughs> Where sin occurs against you. Don't become sheriffs. You're not the sin monitor. Trying to see where other people have got it wrong. That's not your job. That's the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit convicts of sin. God is not looking for somebody to take the Holy Spirit's place. There is not an opening in the Trinity, and God's not taking applications. <laughs> will, will Richard Burke come and apply for this job? Because he's really good at this. That's not something, a skill that you need to develop. The Holy Spirit's more than capable. Last thought before we apply this. Unity is powerful. Unity is a powerful thing. But let me tell you this, we don't have unity when we focus on unity. I've been around for quite a while and in my lifetime, there's been three major moves of trying to get churches in unity. And none of them have worked. Is the Holy Spirit incapable? No, because as soon as we focus on unity, we get focused on the wrong thing. Let's be united as long as you agree with me. That's the basis for you, right? We'll, we'll be in great unity as long as you agree with everything I say. But see, when we focus on unity, we get it. Where do we get unity? When we focus on Jesus. When we focus on Jesus, we come in unity. Not when we focus on doctrine. Not when we focus on certain activities. If you pray like I pray, we'll be, in uni we'll be unified. If you organize your church like I organize it, if you believe in this type of leadership structure, we'll be in unity. No, when we focus on Jesus. A.W. Tozer said this, a hundred pianos tuned to the same tuning fork will be in tune with one another. But if you've ever been a piano tuner, you know the old Chinese whispers thing. You tune a piano, you tune a piano to that piano, and then you tune the other one to that one, and the other one to that one. By the time you get to a hundred, the hundredth one isn't in tune with the first one. Where does unity come from? Our focus on Jesus. Guys, we're all different. That's God's plan. He brings people all together from different backgrounds and different strata and different education and different uh, ethnicities and different gifts. And he brings us together and we become united because our focus is Jesus. Not because our focus is our doctrine. How do you realize that we changed the words of one of the songs today? Good, I'm glad. 
<laughs> Christy does, did because I asked her to change it. And the worship team, huh? <laughs> because it, I mean, song was okay, but it's not our agreement about that. It's not our agreement about certain doctrine that makes us in, in unity. So what does this mean for you? What does it mean for us as a church? It means this. Walk in love and grace. Don't look for hurts. There's something in the world that people are looking to be offended. A whole bunch of people who are so uh, sensitive that if you say the wrong thing, We've got to, even got a new term for it. It's called microaggressions. You say something that I find offensive, it's a micro. You're, 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 you're attacking me. You have no clue what you said. But there is this thing of people looking to be hurt. Don't let that get into your life. Don't let that get into the church. Don't walk around looking for who's going to hurt me. Unfortunately, that is the fruit of rejection. A spirit of rejection looks to be rejected. And so someone doesn't greet me how I think they should. Or someone makes fun of me because I sit in the second row. (laughs) And I get offended. Love and grace. Second application where there's sin toward you. Go to them. Don't get sucked into another's offense. If someone wants to tell you how they're offended, ask them, have you spoken to the person? If they haven't, don't even talk to them. Oh, but I just need your advice. No, you don't. The biblical advice is go talk to them. That's all I can tell you. I don't need to hear the rest of it. I found myself this week, I had to actually apologize to someone. I called someone because I was sharing something with him last week and uh, the way I did it, the Holy Spirit showed me was I was actually justifying myself. And I called him and uh, fortunately, I mean, the person I, I talked to said, fortunately they forgave me. But he said, you know, I was actually Sunday morning and it was during the worship. He said, we were in the, the building. I couldn't actually hear what you were saying. I was going to say, let's go outside but I thought, well, I probably don't need to hear this anyway. Just simply say to people, I don't need to hear this. Lastly, look for restoration rather than justification. Last scripture, Luke 16. Jesus has just told this parable about faithful. He was faithful in the least and faithful in the little. And, and verse 14, now the Pharisees who were lovers of money, they heard all these things and they derided him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. Let's not be those who justify ourselves. Let's not be those who can make an excuse for why we shoot the deer hunter in the fluorescent vest in the tree. 
we can always justify our position. We can always point out how someone else is wrong. What's our response when someone comes to us and says, Russ, you've sinned against me. My response should be, let me look at it. I'm sorry. I was wrong. Not justifying myself. It's not, well, brother, I'm sorry if I hurt you. I hate that stuff. You get it in politics. If you've taken offense, that's a, now the Holy Spirit convicts of sin, righteousness and judgment. When I've sinned, the Holy Spirit lets me know. What I did last week was sin. It was wrong. I was justifying myself. The Holy Spirit woke me up in the middle of the night. I got up the next morning and I called the person that I had talked to. Why? I didn't say, hey, let me tell you the whole story. No, what I did was wrong. Repentance is admitting it's wrong. If your brother sins against you and repents, forgive him. It's wrong. Now, there's, we've talked about this in the past. There's a whole different story. There's an attitude of forgiveness that releases people from our judgment and releases us from bitterness, even if they don't repent. But you don't trust them. See, that kind of repentance doesn't restore, re- that, I mean, that kind of forgiveness doesn't restore relationship. Relationships only restored where there's repentance. So if someone is stealing money from me, I can have a hard attitude that releases them and me from bitterness, but that doesn't mean that I put them in a place where they can keep stealing. If you've been the victim of someone else's wrong concept of relationships, if you've been the victim of someone's justification or someone's abuse or someone's sin, you can release that. We talked about that a few weeks ago. That is a terrible thing. But that's the world. The problem is too much of the church has a mixture of a little bit of the kingdom and a little bit of the world, and we're actually hurting people. Yet in Matthew 18, where's my bookmark? Thank you, Johan. Jesus says this. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. It's terrible when you're the victim of someone else's sin. It's worse when you're the perpetrator. And your mixture of world and kingdom brings hurt to people. There's been a lot of misunderstanding of this scripture. A lot of this idea of judging people with witnesses and all kinds of stuff and and a legal uh, court perspective mentality that brings people and puts them on trial. It's not what it's about. If you've been the victim of that, God can heal you. But let me tell you, don't ever be the cause of that. That's not the kingdom that Jesus is building. That's not the church that Jesus is building. We want to be just the opposite. 
We're going to talk about applying this in ministry to one another in a couple weeks. But it's key that we get this. Because the reality is, even when the Holy Spirit manifests himself through us, it's still through us. It'd be wonderful if the Holy Spirit just did everything on his own, didn't need us. For some reason, he's chosen to use us. And the problem is that it's through us. And it gets a little bit of us thrown in there sometimes. And so we have to have a hard attitude that says, hey, I'm going to overlook the immaturity. I'm going to overlook the things that, that people are still growing in. But I'm going to keep short accounts on issues that are sitting. I'm not going to allow breaks to occur. Will you bow your head? I said I felt that the Holy Spirit was wanting to tear down some strongholds. And maybe you've been the recipient of a wrong understanding of this and have been put in a place of others judging you. And you've been hurt. God wants to set you free. But worse than that is if you felt justified in sharing your hurts with others and getting them on your side against someone else. You misunderstood this completely. And then you're the cause of hurt. If that's the case, would you just repent? Repent just means admit it and quit it. Say, okay, I was wrong. There's no condemnation. The devil doesn't beat you up with that every, every other day. He, bring, he makes you aware so you can acknowledge it. You can turn from it. That's part of what humility is. We're not perfect. I'm not perfect. Nobody is. So what is my response when the Holy Spirit brings conviction? I don't beat myself up. I don't spend weeks saying how terrible I am. If I have a spirit of rejection from the world, I probably do that. And some of you have. You need to be set free from that. But the reality is when the Holy Spirit brings conviction, I say, ah, my eyes are open. I see now how I addressed this person was wrong. Lord, will you forgive me? I won't do it again. Simple. Let me add one other thought here. Because the world the concept of relationship in the world is very much competition and comparison. It results in a lot of criticism. And maybe you've been the receiver of criticism. Maybe you had a parent that all they did was criticize you. They pointed out everything you did wrong. They thought they were helping you, but they were approaching from a worldly perspective, and it brings death, not life. I was sharing this church in Singapore. A guy came to me after just bawling. Chinese guy. They don't do that. With his family, 
bawling. And he told me about how his upbringing, his dad was just totally critical. Everything he did wrong. And he's bawling. And I said, okay, what's the problem? He said, I've become my dad. So he's got his kids and he's humbling himself saying, will you forgive me? I've been critical. If you've been experienced that, would you ask God to heal you? But if you've taken that on and you've become the critic, would you just repent? You don't need to look for the faults in others. You don't need to tell them how they could have done them better. Now, there is a responsibility when you're a parent to help train your kids, but that has to be in the foundation of love and grace. So we encouraged people to participate. We encouraged people to be involved in ministry. We encouraged people to share uh, prophetic words and words of knowledge and different things. And sometimes we don't get it quite right. What do we do? Shut that off? Or we just say, God, give us enough grace to overlook where things aren't exactly right. Would you just respond to the Holy Spirit? There's a song that we sang a while back. It starts very simply. I was a wretch. I remember who I was. I was lost. I was blind. I was running out of time. It goes on to talks about Jesus bridging the gap and forgiving us. That's the foundation for kingdom relationships. I am a wretch redeemed by the blood of Christ. Being transformed. I'm not transformed, I'm being transformed. Let me tell you, you're a wretch. But you're being transformed. Let's not get focused on the wretch part. But let's just remember where we come from. The forgiveness. Why is he worthy, as Matt was sharing earlier? Because he paid the penalty. But God in his great love and grace, forgave us. Lord, would you empower us to live kingdom and not the world? Would you empower us to tear down the strongholds of a wrong understanding of your kingdom or your scripture? Would you bring healing where there's been hurt? I don't say that flippantly. Oh, would you bring healing? Too often people are hurt by people wielding scriptures wrongly as a sword. Oh, would you bring healing? And then would you build a place of protection, of love, of grace? Amen. Would you stand? I realize if I have you sit there with your eyes closed for too long, you might fall asleep. Not that you would fall asleep while I'm ranting and raving. 
part of being a light is that we're different than the world. You don't have to try and be different. This is not an encouragement. Be different. You are different. When you've allowed Jesus to change you, you're different. You don't have to try and be different. People will see that because you'll be loving and full of grace. God bless you. Have a wonderful day. Uh, Activate will begin uh, at 1, and uh, they're still going for how many more weeks? Two more weeks. Uh, And we don't know when they'll start again, but have a a great day. Be filled with the grace of God. Pour out his love on someone. And uh, if, I, if I've used you this today, forgive me. Please, Lance, Tim, Josh. <laughs> no, Josh isn't. <laughs>